0: Well, our passage tonight is a passage that in our current context is probably one of the most controversial passages in our culture. Like if you were just read this passage or discuss this passage, say, at your average university, it would be incredibly offensive to the sensibilities of most people. And part of that is because we are in many ways heirs of Karl Marx. Let me explain what I mean by that. Not necessarily because all of us believe in Marxism per se, but what Marx did was influential and it's still with us. He basically said that the logic of history is antagonism. That the logic of history is one class against another. Is one group against another. That the way history moves forward is through these conflicts. And uh, fundamentally, again, this is a, an antagonistic view of the way history works. And what that's done, whether we know this or not, it seeps into the way we think of relationships, say, between men and women, relationships, say, between rich and poor, or between the generations. And so what Paul has to say here is incredibly radical given our mindset. But I, I want to point out, too, that in his original context, this section of scripture would have been equally startling in a different direction, right? If we as a society err on the side of being against patriarchy, against hierarchy and all those things, that society was deeply hierarchical. And those with power uh, could use it widely and without much thought. And so what I want to suggest is the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to reconfigure relationships, whether you live in that kind of society or our kind of society, Uh, He wants it to change the way we think about our relationships among the generations, among the sexes, uh, and among those who have and those who have less. So let's pray before we get into the word. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge that you had the right uh, to come in judgment, but instead you came in humility and service. Uh, You laid down your life. Uh, You are the rightful Lord, you are the rightful King of the universe, yet you came in humility and lowliness of heart. And you forever transformed the way we are to conceive of authority and submission and everything else. Lord, I pray that you would come tonight, that you would walk in our midst, Jesus, and that you would speak to us about what it means for us when we are in you, how that changes our relationships how that changes how we wield authority, how that changes how we submit. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us a great and glorious vision for the way you have redeemed history to be. And we thank you for that, Lord, in your name. Amen. So I'm going to start with verse 18 of chapter 5, because uh, this begins an important thought that, that governs everything that Paul has to say here in this section. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, what I want to suggest is that Paul's main command in all of these verses that we're going to cover tonight that include husbands and wives, that include children and parents, that include slaves and masters. The governing command is to be filled with the spirit. All right, this is, Paul is unpacking how to be filled with the spirit. And on the one hand, he says, we are filled with the spirit as we address one another, as we worship, as we meet in home groups, as we meet in church, as we gather around his word. That's one way we're filled with the spirit. But the other way that he unpacks in these verses is that we are filled with the Spirit as we are in Christ, and we allow our position in Christ to begin to impact how we relate to parents, children, spouses, those that are our bosses, or anything like that. So Paul will basically say to be filled with the Spirit, gather and worship with the people of God, and then go and live out your new identity in your relationships. And it's kind of startling because the gospel that Paul has proclaimed is huge, It's cosmic. I mean, it covers everything, and the evil powers have been defeated. And then he turns to say, and this is how you should relate in your marriages. It's almost as if he goes super cosmic, and then he goes super mundane. But see, that's always how God works. Consider Jesus himself. He didn't go to Rome, the capital of the ancient world. He didn't go to the capitals of other kingdoms in Asia. He went to a remote region. And he had a handful of disciples. He loves to start small. In fact, I would suggest that that's how he has always transformed the world. So the governing principle that Paul lays down in this section for the relationships that he's going to discuss is submitting to one another. And it's really unfortunate. Your text will have a break at the end of verse 21. And maybe it'll have a heading that says something like wives submit to your husbands or something like that. There'll be a space That's really unfortunate because the sentence continues. It doesn't stop. It's not a neat break. And now Paul changes subjects. He says, we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he goes on to elaborate what that submission to one another out of reverence for Christ looks like for a husband, looks like for a wife, looks like for a child, etc. So one of the things you should do is maybe just scrabble out, scratch out all that space there and scratch out the the subheading. And realize that they're connected, that they belong together, and that Paul is unpacking this idea. And if you want a summary of what Paul means by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, there's none better than Paul himself in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, where he says, consider other people better than yourselves. All right? For Paul, this is what it means, that humility is recognizing that I am put here to bless other people. And that they, in a sense, are more important than me. <clears throat> then she, that humility is not, as some people say, thinking less of yourself, but thinking less of yourself. Get it? And thinking more of others. And what you are called to do and be towards them. Remember the definition of humility that I gave a couple of weeks ago. Humility is the choice to forego your status... Deploy your resources or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. And that's what Paul is unpacking when he says submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So in a sense, he is saying wives or excuse me, husbands are to submit to their wives. But it looks different because they're the husband. The shape of that looks different because of the husband. And notice, too, this unique phrase that occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. You do this. You submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word is fear. The word is awe. And it doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. That precise terminology. Paul wants to say, God the Father, because of your faith in Jesus, has inserted you in Jesus Christ and filled you with the Spirit. Your life is ultimate gift from creation to redemption, and now you are in Christ and out of awe at who he is and what he's done, every relationship has changed. In every relationship, you no longer do this negotiation of well, we're at odds with one another and I need to figure out how to get my way. You look up to Christ and you ask him how your position in him changes your attitude and your actions toward every person you relate to. Amen? You look up and not towards antagonism. So it is this reverence, this awe, this fear of our Lord that causes us to be transformed in the way we think about every relationship. Now, some people call this section the household codes. There were household codes written by all kinds of philosophers in antiquity. Aristotle himself talked about the relationship between husband and wife, slave and master, uh, parents and children. He used the exact same categories that Paul uses. So in many ways, what Paul has to say is similar, but I want to suggest that Paul absolutely reconfigures everything, okay? One of my favorite videos is of somebody who took a 1973 VW Beetle and put a, I don't know, ridiculous different kind of engine in it. It's like a jet engine. And he takes people out on a ride and gets a reaction to them, their faces, as he drives around and rockets around town, all right? That's what God has done. The relationships are the same, but something inside has been changed, and it changes everything about how those relationships go. It reconfigures those relationships. Now... This is true of all scripture, but it's especially true of these scriptures. The questions you ask determine the outcomes you get. Does that make sense? If you come to the text and you want to prove something, that determines the questions you ask. Yes? If you want to prove that the husband is the boss of the home, well, this is the text for you. And if you're asking, is this text proved that husbands are the boss of the home? Well, sure. But I want to suggest that's not the most fruitful question. The most fruitful question is, how does my being in Christ change every relationship in my life? How does my being connected to the King of kings and the Lord of lords who died for me change the way I relate in all of my relationships? I think that's the most important question. So at one level, yes, Paul reinforces hierarchy, patriarchy, and other things. But at another level, from the inside, he radically transforms them. So let's look at how he let's look at how he does that. Um, so, verse twenty-two, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. First, let me point out something that is. The most important aspect of this text, and it occurs in every one of these commands in some way, shape or form, the mention of the Lord. Remember, in Paul's letters, when he says the Lord, he's talking about the Lord Jesus. And in every one of these relationships, he connects the way I relate to the other person through my relationship with the Lord himself. Does that make sense? Every single one of those. It's as if we are all in Christ and Christ is between us. And the way I relate to you is now shaped and transformed and filtered through who he is and who, through, who he has called me to be. That's the first thing. If you pay attention, every one of these has some mention of, in my relationship with that person, it is, it is mediated through Christ himself. Second, it addresses wives first, which would have been unusual in, in antiquity. It addresses them first, not the head of the household, but the wives. That's a a rather radical thing in the context of the time. They are worthy of moral address and responsible agents before God and have a calling before God, just like every member of the body of Christ. But again, he says, you are to submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Now, I would also point out here that everybody, every Christian will in some context be in the place of authority. And every Christian will, in some context, be in the place of submission, right? You'll always find yourself in one of those two places, in some way, shape, or form. And notice, too, men, husbands, ultimately, we're the bride. You follow that out? Temporarily, we're the head of our wives. But ultimately, we're a part of the bride of Christ. So we better understand submission. Submission. Right? We better understand submission, and the scripture calls us to submission in all kinds of places. But the thing that crucially transforms everything is the wife is to submit to her husband as unto the Lord. This means, among other things, that she's to treat her husband as the Lord Jesus would have her treat him. right? As he would expect that she treat him. This has more to do with attitude. And I would point out in this context, Paul doesn't use the word that he used for children and for slaves, which is obey. He uses a word that means something more like respect, more like honor. Um, So here's the point. Something higher than her relationship with her husband determines her behavior and her attitude towards her husband. And this is going to be a theme in every one of these contexts. It is the lordship of Jesus. It is the sovereignty of God that is meant to be a higher authority than every other authority. Uh, And it transforms every other authority. So it is a very brief thing to say to the wives. And then if you just notice by word count, can everybody look? Who gets more words? The husbands get more words. And by the way, if you were trying to find a a place in Scripture that really supported the idea of being a really powerful, austere, strong, authoritative leader, I, I wouldn't go here. Okay, let's read it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So let's see, how does this passage reconfigure authority? How does it reconfigure the authority of a husband as Christ loved the church? Folks, that's a tall order. That's the tallest order you could ask for. The whole shape and demeanor of a husband's attitude towards his wife, if he is a Christian, is to be in the shape of the cross. It's to be in the shape of the one who died. And notice, it doesn't say to the husband, "Subjugate your wife." It says, "Love her." just as Christ loved the church. How does Christ love the church? He humbled himself to serve her. He did the washing and the ironing. Notice what it says: without spot without wrinkle. These are traditionally more serving roles. He doesn't wield his authority to benefit himself at her behalf, but he sacrifices himself for her benefit. Now, I think that's a lifetime's task for husbands. Amen? I'd like to read this from John Chrysostom. John Chrysostom was an early preacher. His name means golden tongue. He lived in the 4th century in Istanbul. And uh, he's a golden tongue because, well, just listen to this. Have you noted the measure of obedience? Pay attention to love's high standard. If you take the premise that your wife should submit to you as the church submits to Christ, then you also should take the same, take the same kind of careful, sacrificial thought for her that Christ takes for the church. Even if you must offer your own life for her, you must not refuse Even if you must undergo countless struggles on her behalf and have all kinds of things to endure and suffer, you must not refuse. Even if you suffer all this, you have still not done as much as Christ has for the church. For you are already married when you act this way, whereas Christ is acting for one who is rejected and hated him." So just as when you act this way, uh, just as he, when she was rejecting, hating, spurning, and nagging him, Brought her to trust him by his great solicitude, not by threatening, lording it over her, or intimidating her, or anything like that. So must you also act towards your wife. Even if you see her looking down on you, nagging and despising you, you will be able to win her over by your great love and affection for her. Oof. Isn't that good? So see what I mean by... Being in Christ totally reconfigures these things. It totally should reconfigure our concept of authority. That's the first way. Paul's not done with husbands, all right, as Christ loved the church. The second thing he says is, as their own body. All right, he just makes the point, you take care of your body because it's part of you. And if you don't take care of it, you're not going to be able to do the things that you're supposed to do. You're a unit. And Paul doesn't call this selfishness. Take care of your own body. It's wise. It's smart. Eat well. Sleep. Otherwise, you can't operate. And by the same token, Paul says, this is how you should treat your wife. Right? You should treat her as one with yourself because she is one. And then finally, he says, and this is really my favorite part. Guys, when we're talking about marriage, we're talking about a great mystery. We're on the shores of a deep ocean that we can't really plumb the depths of right here, Paul says. And then he quotes Genesis where it says, for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And what Paul wants to say about that passage is we read it and we're like, oh yeah, that's where, you know, it talks about the origins of marriage. And Paul wants to say, no, not exactly. That passage there, just like most of the Bible, is about Jesus. It's about him leaving his father's house to take on flesh, to cling to his wife on the cross to die for her, to be raised for her, and to live, to intercede with his father on her behalf. He's clung to us in the incarnation and clung to us on the cross. And he clings to us even still before the father. That passage and every marriage is speaking of Christ and his love for the church in history. Amen. Every marriage will go away, but that marriage and every marriage, even the bad ones sometimes speak In a shadowy way of Christ and his relationship with the church. Every marriage is royal, therefore. It participates in some way, in some limited way in this. And think about what we do when we get married and we have this ceremony. Who who was the last marriage? Who was the last marriage in here? All right, we have, yeah, freshmen. Y'all aren't a year, right? Okay. You make promises to forsake all others, you exchange rings. You celebrate it with a meal. We share our worldly possessions with one another. We take on a new family name. And then there's the physical act of love that symbolizes and seals that commitment to one another. And there's this trust that out of that, new life will come into the world. All right, that's what we do in marriage. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He promises never to leave us or forsake us. We promise to forsake all other gods and all other loves to follow him. He gives us a gift to seal the covenant, the Holy Spirit. He provides a meal to share with the whole family, which is this table that we come to weekly. All his possessions become ours and all of our debts become his. We take his name. We're Christians. And we enter into union with Christ through the physical act of baptism. And we trust that out of that union, God will bring forth new life. Everywhere. Paul says. It's a great mystery. And they point to the ultimate wedding that is to come in history. Amen? I feel like somebody want to get married. I feel like. So, again, for this reason, shall a man leave his father and mother? You should think Christ left his bride. And, by the way, the other thing I want to add is the thing about marriage, the thing about marriage is God designed it, a man and a woman, is its opposites. Opposites bring forth life. Opposites who are bound together in covenant bring forth life. One of my favorite quotes by G.K. Chesterton, I share it all the time. He said, I read in a newspaper that Americans can get divorced for incompatibility. He said, I wonder why you get married at all, because that's the whole point of marriage. That when you discover we're incompatible, then you fight through it, and new life comes out of it. Amen? All right, now he turns to address children. And notice again, he addresses the the person in submission first. They get addressed first before the, the authority. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Once again, children are addressed and dignified by the address. They're addressed as members of the body of Christ. They're addressed as responsible moral agents. They're welcomed and called into this harmony between the generations. Again, the key expression is children obey your parents in the Lord. You obey your parents because of the Lord, because of your faith in the Lord Jesus, because of your faith in him, you submit to him, your parents. And by the way, Paul doesn't spend much time unpacking a lot of questions we might have, like, well, what, what if your parents ask you to do something wicked? And I think Paul, if he had time, would say, well, yes, in those cases, you're meant to, you don't have to obey them. But the the point he wants to make is the harmony that Christ creates and faith in Christ creates between the generations. So honoring parents, then Paul says, it brings a blessing. It brings length in the land. Now, keep in mind, he's talking about, well, the passage that he's quoting is talking about the land of Israel and the people, the Jews. But these are Gentiles in Ephesus that he's addressing. So what is he talking about, that you may live long in the land? I think of it this way. Every image that we have in our lives of what we want in the long run, a meal with your family, a festive celebration at the holidays, settling in a house that you love and on land that you love all those images are pointing to the ultimate image all those images are pointing to the holy land that we have with god at the culmination of history i love the higginbotham's place and i bet you they love it but you know what it's pointing to something more right it's pointing to something better and that's the promise that he gives here. Honor your father and mother. It's, it's more than just do what they say. It's the whole context of the relationship is one of harmony between the generations. Not disunity, not fighting between the generations. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So don't provoke your children. Now, I take this to mean that Paul understands that that's what fathers tend to do, provoke, frustrate. That in their flesh, that in their sin, the way God made them, sin twists it. And what they do is they frustrate, they provoke, they push too far. I think it implies a tendency. And so Paul says, listen, your being in Christ pulls you back away from that tendency, He says, what you're called to do instead is bring them up. I love this word because you remember the parable that Nathan tells David, the story that Nathan tells David about the man who had a lamb and he fed it with his hand. It's the same word that's used there of him feeding it with his hand. It's kind of a tender word. It's kind of an intimate word. You bring them up. You nourish them and you teach and remind them. And again, this is the key here. Uh, How does he put it? The, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Again, you should read the Lord Jesus. See, one of the tendencies of human fatherhood that provokes is we foist on our children our dreams, our hopes, our visions. But what Paul says here is, no, there's a higher vision. There are higher hopes, and they're not yours. They're the Lord Jesus. There's higher values. They're not yours. They're the Lord Jesus' values. Does that make sense? There's a set of values and expectations and teachings that transcends your own. And yours may be good, but what, what fathers are called to do is always bring it back to the teachings of the Lord. Are my teachings in conjunction with him or are they my own little versions of my own kingdom? Does that make sense? It calls fathers to lay down their particular visions and dreams and take up those of Christ and raise their children in those. Verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Now, every employer in here is seeing this and drooling. Because you read that and you're like, yep, that's what I want for my employees. And Paul would say, yeah, that's not for you. The next section is for you. (laughs) This is for your employees to hear from me or from the Lord himself. And again, it's the, the person in submission, the category in submission that is addressed first as important moral agents. And there's several things in here that I find precious. One is that it transforms even the lowliest act of service as something that Jesus himself will look at that person and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You did that as unto me, and I saw it, and here is your reward. Notice that it says, whatever good anyone does, which also, again, implies that if there's a command from a master, or in our case, an employer that's evil, Paul wouldn't say, oh yeah, you have to do that, right? We're responsible moral agents that have to discern that. As to the Lord, it it leaves room for deliberation about what is good. And it relativizes any immoral demands that might be put on us. But ultimately, Paul will say, your master, your boss is to be loved, is to be loved. And he's not your master in the ultimate sense. Once again, it relativizes that authority and lifts it higher. And the last thing I would say about what he says to slaves is, we read this and, okay, it's slavery. It's something that we have generally, universally condemned. What I would suggest is that there was no way that Paul could, at this time in this place, overturn slavery. But I want to suggest that the gospel leavened society such that it ultimately could. That his teachings, if taken seriously over time, did, would and did overturn slavery. And one last thing that I think is worth noting about this. Paul, this is the only category that Paul doesn't give a scriptural warrant for. In other words, he gives scriptural warrant for husband and wife. He gives scriptural warrant for parents and children. But he does not back up the master-slave relationship with scripture. Right. So, again, I think all these things indicate that there's 11 there that will ultimately undo uh, the institution of slavery. Verse nine. Masters, do the same to them. Now, you should be asking yourself, what? Well, what's the same? What does that mean? And stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven And that there is no partiality with him. So I would suggest that maybe the most startling, the most arresting statement in all of these passages is masters do the same to them. What's he talking about? Well, go back to the head command over the whole thing, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I think Paul is saying that masters should submit to their slaves. Now, again, it doesn't look like an overturning of authority or erasing of hierarchy, but it does look like they're to orient themselves to the benefit of their slaves. And why do I think this? I think this because Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, sat his disciples down, took off his outer garment, put on a towel, and washed their feet. And if the master did that, well, surely every master in Christ should do the same. Right? There, we're called, I think, to do the same. He is, again, reconfiguring. Doesn't do away with the hierarchy, but he radically transforms it with his character. Stop your threatening. Well, once again, back to the father thing, don't frustrate your kids. Stop your threatening. I think this is a universal temptation of authority. Threat. Domineering. Lording it over. And he's, Christ reorients and corrects that. He undoes it. And he undoes it by saying, you have a master in heaven. How would you like him to treat you? And by the way, here, you should your mind should go to all the parables of the master that forgives a slave. Right. And then he goes or forgives a slave a debt. And then he goes and won't forgive a much smaller debt to someone else. He does not play favorite favorites. So, again, every every authority is transcended. There's an authority higher than every authority. When you have government as the highest authority, it will ultimately oppress its people. But when government has an authority that it has to give an answer to, and if it knows it, that becomes a just society. Leaders puts you in your place when you know that there is a master above you to whom you will give account. It puts every authority in its place. So let me summarize a few things that Paul has done in this section. To those under authority, he is addressed. He upholds the notion of submission, he upholds the notion of hierarchy and what I might call followership. But it's done as unto the Lord and in the Lord and for the Lord, and that radically transforms it. It lends it significance, it lends it meaning, it also lends it responsibility. Responsibility to discern when something is not could not possibly be done as unto the Lord. It calls us to discern to those in authority. Paul, I think, upholds the notion of authority, but if Christ is your model for leadership, man, that changes things. If Christ is your model for how to lead anything you lead, it transforms everything. You, you can't frustrate. You can't threaten. You can't subjugate. You can't do any of those things and say that you are being a leader as Christ is a leader. The purpose of authority is to benefit those under you. It is to sacrifice for them so that they will thrive. Again, all Christians will submit in some contexts and be in authority and in other contexts. But it is Christ who defines all of this. And so this is the way I like to think of this. We are living in a post-Christian age. But when Christianity was spreading, and I'm going to address my Marshall students here. I have some Marshall students that are writing papers on how Christianity sort of transformed the Roman world by the values that they brought to it. Christianity did it once, and I believe we're called to do it again. We're called to transform our world by these values that we live. But the way God does it, the cosmic gospel turns the world upside down. Inside out. By changing the heart, by changing the family, by changing the relationship between generations, by changing the relationship between men and women. And that leavens society and that transforms. And y'all, it's a slow process. And it doesn't look like a lot's going on. But for Paul, when he wants to talk about how Christians are called to respond to this great and awesome gospel... This is what he says to husbands, wives, children, parents, employers, employees. So how, do you, how are we to be filled with the Spirit? Well, by gathering around the gospel of Jesus Christ and by reminding one another and singing to God and celebrating that gospel. And then by going into all of our relationships And finding out how my placement in Christ changes the way I am called to relate to my wife, to my kids. And by the way, preaching this is one of the most intimidating things you can do. And it should be for all of us, right? Back to submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Amen? Amen. Kelly's going to come and bring us to the table.